I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. You know, when I thought about my activities this morning, I let out the chickens, looked for eggs. Um, I put hay out for Mm -hmm. the cattle and kind of inspected them as they passed by me. Mm -hmm. Kind of saw what things I might need to do. And I thought, I don't know that I would have thought I've been doing this exactly. When I was growing up in the South Bronx, the inner city of New York City. Kind of fun, the twists life takes, isn't it? It certainly is. And it also puts me to to mind of the various progressions, just as you said, Mm -hmm. Dave Corbett, the twists that life takes. um, I personally believe there are no accidents, Mm -hmm. that uh, all this is part of the plan, not necessarily the plan that I can see the end of. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Um, But... There I was, growing up in the South Bronx, uh, to a grandmother who could make anything grow on (laughs) the firescape in Manhattan. The woman had a green thumb, and certainly she exposed this to me as I spent summers with her and my siblings out on Staten Island at a time when Staten Island was very, very rural indeed. It wasn't Mm. connected to the rest of New York City Mm. by a very large large bridge that now exists. And so I got a little bit of dirt under my fingernails and carried this kind of desire into my life as I became a young mom who uh, had her first backyard urban garden in Minneapolis. So there I was with a little infant girl. And um, I remember very well uh, a summer day when I had a potato fork and I had a spade mm-hmm. and it was warm and I had some books around me, but the one that I really was referring to a lot. I mean, the spine was broken, the pages were dusty, mm-hmm. there were dog-eared uh, pages. And that was a book called How to Grow More Vegetables. And fruits and nuts, berries, grains, and other crops, how to grow more of them than you ever thought possible on less land than you can imagine Hmm. by John Jevons. So the book that I was referring to was in its second printing at the time. Mm -hmm. In front of me today, right here in our studios, I have the eighth edition. Wow. This is a book that has sold over 500,000 copies because... It is about bio-intensive gardening and farming. You're talking half a million there? Talking half a million. Wow. And now why has this book sold so well? And why is this approach one that was pioneered and it continues to be developed by John Jevons? Why is that now being adopted or has been adopted in 151 countries around the world? Mm. And how is this a response and maybe one of the hopeful responses to the many challenges that we have today, you know, mm-hmm. climate change, weird mm-hmm. weather, drought, uh, and the growing population. Well, you know, I certainly can't answer those questions well, but we do have on the line with us this morning the man who can, 
Uh, certainly, he is a very modest man, so we're going to have to pull some of this from him. But we have on the line today, and I'm so happy to introduce John Jevons. Good morning, John. How are you? Well, fine. Thank you very much. And you have made the wonderful sacrifice of being up at this hour of the day, because you're in <laughs> California. A little oh earlier, not quite as humid as you are. <laughs> oh. Well, John, it's such a pleasure to have you on the line. You know, and I think maybe we'll start at the beginning, because I know we only have about 20 minutes, and so um, we have a, 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 a bit of ground to cover, but at a fairly high level. Some people may not know what biointensive farming or gardening is. Can you give us a, a short definition? Sure. Uh, what we do is we prepare the soil in such a way to where we have good soil structure for 24 inches deep, and this means you get four times the nutrient cycling to it. Oh, and also what that does is it adds the most missing uh, ingredient in the soil globally, which is free, which is air. Ah. And the microbes need that, just like we need air. Uh, the second thing we do is we add compost, and compost is a food source, a source to hold water. It holds six times its weight in water, and it has antibiotics that enable the plants to withstand uh, disease. And if they withstand disease, they don't get sick. They don't have insect problems generally. So you have a pharmacia in your soil. Hmm. The combination of these first two elements means that you can put all the plants so close together that when the plants are mature, their leaves touch or barely touch, and you get four times the plants in a growing area. In addition to that, the yield of each plant can be the same as if they were in rows with the really wide spacing between the rows. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really efficient. The fourth thing is we use companion planting, and people may not know it, but you can get higher yields of green beans and strawberries, not if they're interplanted, but if they're in small sections next to each other. Mm. We had one market farmer who was near Palo Alto, where we were at the time, and he came in eight years after hearing this, and he said that he went to the bank laughing every week because all <laughs> of his farming friends thought he was crazy. Um, but he was having a good time. The fifth thing is we have a way that we divide up our planning, and 60% of our growing area, this may seem strange, but they're in compost and calorie crops. This is your winter and summer grains. Hmm. Um, 30%, uh, this is the uh, next element, 30% of the growing area is in special root crops that are high in calories. Seven of them produce up to 20 times the calories per unit of area, per unit of time, compared with your winter and summer grains. So this helps shrink your garden. It helps miniaturize things. And then uh, the next is we use open-pollinated seeds uh, mm -hmm. that have stood the test of time. And eight, it's a whole system. Uh, you can't just dig shallowly and put all the plants close together and expect it to work. Mm -hmm. You know, John, I'm going to, um, I guess, do a little testimonial here uh, because, uh -huh. again, I was just working in a very small backyard garden. So I'm not, I wasn't the farmer I am today. Um, and I was starting out like so many people. And one of the and some of the things that I immediately implemented from what I read was that notion of working in beds 
versus in an entire garden that's all tilled up. Uh-huh. And, and I dug down, as you suggested. I, my beds were just about four feet wide so that I, could, I would never actually step into my beds again or do it very minimally in order to keep that soil structure as light as possible. And, and I also um, followed your, your instruction and I did the intensive planting. Um, so I wasn't doing things in rows, uh, but rather putting things uh, at a good distance from one another. And actually what I found is that the, the leaves from the plants actually grew to shade the soil so that I had fewer weeds. That's right. What we find after three years, we only have the weeds we want to have growing in there, like sanchas, which is like a tall dandelion, and it attracts birds that then do insect control. Hmm. Wow. It was, it was, it was amazing. I, I got lots of weird looks from my neighbors uh, because they thought, what is this woman doing? In fact, in one tiny little, I did a little trial and um, found that I was growing pole beans. Um, the pole beans uh, grew up their respective uh, branches that I had put up. And underneath them, in their shade, I did a trial of many lettuces. So using the shade of the pole beans to um, provide the coolness that, that lettuce needs in the middle of, win- of uh, summer. And by, by understanding a little bit of what you kind of offered in the way of this can grow with that... And this is what you can try if you keep that soil uh, in high nutrition. Right. Uh, these are the things that you can do. And I also found that I was not watering as much. It, it's wonderful. In fact, um, what it means is we use one-eighth the water per pound of vegetable and soft fruit produced. So uh, why not have your, you know, your water bill cut by almost 90%? You know, that's one of the things that I found very, very, um, I guess it's called, I, I would have to say it's amazing about your approach. Because it can be used on the garden scale, but it really has a whole lot of, of impact when it's used as a mini farm, doesn't it? That's, that's true. Uh, we had a man who, uh, in the 1980s, ancient time ago, uh, in Berkeley, California, the late 80s, and he had a quarter of an acre of planted surface, and he netted $50,000 from it. Uh, now, if you scale that up, that's $200,000 an acre at the rate of. Holy uh, and it's just, uh, at the time, uh, per acre, the net was about $2,000 in California. So we're not talking about, just to get things straight, we're not talking about farming as this, you know, exquisite little hobby that you can just spend a lot of money on, but rather something that really has very solid returns economically as well as environmentally? Absolutely. Um, My goal when I began in 1972 is I wanted to know what was the smallest area you could grow all your food, your clothing, your income uh, in, in an environmentally and an equitable way. So if everyone in the whole world did this, that everyone could live well. And when I went and talked to agronomists and farmers in the Central Valley, which was growing one-third of all the food for the United States at the time, they said, well, uh, we don't know the answer to your question, but if you have a 1,000 acres of wheat, 
and it's a good year, you can pay your bills. Well, Gee. I knew that wasn't working besides <laughs> not answering the question. <laughs> so um, it was tag, we were it, and this is my 44th year. Wow. I'd, like, I'd like to get back to something you mentioned or a little earlier, John. Yeah. You mentioned uh, planting open-pollinated seeds. Could you explain a little bit about what open-pollinated seeds are? Open-pollinated seeds are when you plant them they, uh, and save the seed. The seed is the same as a seed that you planted. Now, hybrids, when you have a hybrid, it's been a cross between two other varieties, and unless it's been stabilized, uh, which most of them haven't for business reasons, um, then uh, when you plant them, it's like if you cross a white cat and a black cat and you get all sorts of kittens of different colors. Well, you get seeds of different colors with the hybrids. With the open pollinates, they grow true to type. And why is this important? Well, uh, if you grow, I, I like sweet peas, uh, I mean to eat, you know, the green peas. And mm-hmm. um, if you grow a whole bed of those and you have a drought or you have a frost or you have some other challenge, um, it turns out that each one of those plants is a little bit different, even though they're, you know, the same variety. And so some of them are going to survive. So uh, most of your uh, open-pollinated seeds are heritage seeds that have been around for decades, if not hundreds of years. Hmm. You know, if you've just joined us, we are chatting with John Jevons who is the executive director of Ecology Action, which is a nonprofit based in California but with international impact. He is the author of How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land Than You Can Imagine, and the uh, proponent and developer of an approach, an agricultural approach, called Grow Biointensive Mini Farming. John, according to... Your research, and you've been doing this and developing this approach for now into your 44th year. Um, you say that it enables farmers to increase their yields, build soil f- fertility up to 60, 60 times faster than nature, wow. and use up to 66% less water. Let me ask you this. Is this something that can only happen in California? Oh, no. Uh it's happening everywhere, and that's why it's so popular. In, in Kenya, it's gone viral. Uh, in Latin America, it's it's spreading uh, so fast. There's about 3.3 million people in Latin America using it. Um, there were tests done of five different methods uh, years and years ago in Mexico when the government was trying to decide which approach to use of five approaches and they ended up using biologically intensive food raising because people could grow and save their own seeds and because they used so much less water and because they could use locally available fertilizers and composts so the government didn't have to uh, fund people and give them special seeds and do other things and besides that it continued without the government doing anything so they adopted it as the um, best practices one. You know, you mentioned an aspect of all of this that I think is is very, it's, it's telling and it's challenging. And that's the whole notion of bringing inputs into any farm or garden in order to make it grow. 
I, I know lots of organic growers, certified organic growers. They do bring in fertilizers and yes. other kinds of soil amendments on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. And you're advocating for something that's different. Can you, can you explain the difference? Yes. Uh, it turns out that organic farming in the United States is importing 50 to 84 percent of the nutrients in organic fertilizer form and of the organic matter in compost and manures from other areas. So that means other soils are being depleted. It's not intentional. The organic farming is a major positive step in the right direction. We just need to keep on walking. And what we've been working on and what my goal has been since 1972, which seems eons ago, uh, is to have a method of farming that is sustainable on a almost, if not completely, sustainable closed system basis. Uh, it's truly possible to do this. In a half acre, you can raise all the food for one person, uh, for one family of four people for all year, plus grow an average income for the United States. And you can do it by only marketing crops from 10% of your cultivated area. Uh, it's a whole new way of looking at things, but what's really nice is it can mean that you actually work less than 60 to 80 hours a week. Wow. This, this you know, a lot of people are listening to this saying, this can't be true. Um, is this just a theory? <laughs> is this just a theory? I mean, is this really at work anywhere? Um, well, I, I told you about Michael Norton, who used it in two locations in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he was marketing 90% of his produce to um, Northern California and air freighting it to Hong Kong and New York. It was of such quality. So is this, a, is this happening, or you know, is, are, are people getting close to those goals it's, uh, it's across the... It's not being used on a pervasive basis because one of the biggest... Well, it is in other countries. But in other countries. This country, uh, is which I think we're, we're focusing on right now. Right. Um, it means changing a habit and a mindset. And we're talking about the miniaturization of agriculture. Well, what do we have that we carry around with us all the time? You mentioned your clock was in your phone. And it's been said that there are fo- our phones, smartphones, are worth in terms of what they do, $50,000 each. And thank God they don't cost that. But um, what we're talking about is the miniaturization of agriculture. Uh, now, people say, can it work on a large scale? Absolutely. Uh, it was used for thousands of years in China, and they grew all the food for all of China and farmed all of China with it. But it was done in smaller farms. Mm. And if you wanted to, you could ramp up. But if you're already making a lot of money and growing all your food in a small area, do you need it? And do you need the capital investment? The uh, Let's see, the average farm in the U.S. is about 500 acres, costs $500,000 to capitalize. And uh, the return on investment, the ROI, is maybe somewhere between 1.6 and 2.6 percent. Hmm. Uh, the average farmer only earns about $17,000 of the of the $70,000 a year that's needed to live on. So lots of work is done off the farm or the non-farm job. Uh, we need to reclaim farming as a, as a happy way of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's going to take, it's going to take learning and it's going to take time to change. 
you know, you, you, I, you've hit one aspect right on the head, which is we're so used to thinking in America that um, you got you to gotta buy more land. I mean, you just got to buy more land. Uh-huh. Uh, you never seem to have enough. And that whole aspect of, you know, the image um, that's so pervasive in the United States, which is of, you know, thousands of acres in any single crop, mm-hmm. whether it's waving wheat or rustling corn or, you know, whatever it might be, um, it's, it's, we, th- we tend to have this image that's massive. And so trying to come to grips with a very different paradigm, I mean, that's a big cultural change. Right. Well, one of the things we're wanting to do is to catalyze agricultural land trusts, many farming communities where there'd be 100 farmer and families on 120 acres, and their farms would only cost uh, the land and the homes about $100,000 each, which uh, could be a really low monthly payment over a 10-year period, and then the farmer would own his or her farm. And as these begin to happen, people will think, well, do I really want to, you know, commute 10 to 20 hours a week in my car? Do I really want to work 40 hours in an office or 60 to 80 hours in the field? When, wow, look at these people. Uh, they're not working that hard, and mm. they're having a good life. We know banks that are interested in it, foundations, because they could hold the mortgages and get the interest and then invest the interest in their altruistic projects and programs. And we uh, also know farmers and wannabe farmers who are interested in this kind of pattern. So I hope we're able to catalyze that. You, you touched on something that I think will resonate with, with uh, the existing paradigm, which is that you get to own the land. You know, that's, that's uh-huh. something that's, that's still paramount in people's minds. Certainly when I, uh, my husband and I uh, traveled in Japan several years ago, one of the things that we noticed was that, well, one, there's not that much agricultural land in Japan, of course, due to its topography, but that when we came across farmland, very often the settlements, the people buildings tended to be clustered together, and it looked like there may be or several families in this clustered arrangement. And then the land kind of fanned away from them so that you had a, a, a concentration of people and a greater availability of land, which I thought was a very interesting way to construct uh, a settlement so that you had maximum use of, of the land available to you. So they were obviously operating with another paradigm. You know, we have only a few minutes left, John, but I, I did want to touch on, on another paradigm that um, has really hit home as I've read your things, your, your writings, and have listened to some other people, which is the notion or the belief that, that we have in America, and maybe in other parts of the world as well, that the weather changes that we're seeing, that the droughts that we're hearing about, um, while they're very serious, um, they don't push us to a feeling of crisis or, or urgency. What is your thought around this? I mean, how much, how, what is the urgency to have to change and move? Oh, well, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, let's see. On December 15th of 2014, Scientific American came out with an article that indicates that there's only 60 years' worth of farmable soil left in the world. Um, I'm, I'm getting to climate change, and I'll keep it short. 
Um, and it's actually maybe as low as 29 years, uh, if you look at all the data really carefully, not in that article, but in other locations. Um, now, John, just, just to, to explain something, yeah. when you say 60 years or 29 years of soil left, does that mean soil that has that is healthy soil, that is usable soil? Yes, exactly. Okay. And uh, so, and we think that this is like years off, but right now in Sao Paulo, Brazil, they only have about 43 days worth of water left. We're in a situation of peak farmable soil, peak water. The United Nations is saying that in 10.5 years that uh, three-quarters of the world's people will be at risk because of not enough water to grow any food or not enough food. Um, Things are changing really fast, but with grow biointensive sustainable mini farming, if everyone used this kind of approach or a similarly effective approach, uh, that the amount of carbon dioxide that's surplus in the atmosphere could be pulled into additional plant populations per unit of area and into increased um, carbon in the soil. And we have a paper called Climate Change and Grow Biointensive in which we cite the level of CO2 that things would need to be dropped to that's given by a NASA expert. And uh, we show that we could reach that. So all we got to do is start, but good heavens, there's a lot of us that need to begin. <laughs> yes, yeah. That so the the problems are more urgent than we tend to think, but but you're saying that the solution is available. Absolutely, and we know ways to make compost two to ten times more powerful, which means it can hold more water, more nutrients. Most of the world's soils are demineralized, and we're going to have to address that, and, and uh, Ecology Action's been focusing on that for some time. The thing that's exciting is that there are solutions. That's why, in spite of these challenges, you can hear that I'm upbeat. Yes. I know we can do it. Okay, so, John, you know, I have your book, and, and, and thanks to your organization, um, several other now books and reports that I'm going to be going through, that's available to me. But how can people who are listening to this show, who go to my website, how can they find out more? What is a website that they can go to? They can go to our uh, mail order service, bountifulgardens.org, all lowercase, no spaces, no underlines, bountifulgardens.org. And all the Ecology Action publications are available there. Also, people might have fun surfing our um, our home site, which is growbiointensive.org, and we have a new series of webinars that you can locate on, on there that uh, I think are really exciting. You can do your learning right at home. You know, I, I tapped into those uh, a few days ago, and actually I'm, I'm up to, six, I think, video six. Wow. Um, it, it, they're, they're easy to watch. Um, you can watch them over and over again. And that website has just like so much information on it. Um, you know, you can take it at your leisure. You can kind of do it intensively if you choose. You know, I understand too, um, John, that you do give uh, workshops. Yes, we have three-day workshops, one in Willits, California, and uh, it's about three hours north of San Francisco, the first stoplight, amazing. Um and uh, that's in March, and in November uh, we have tours at our site. You can find the schedule at the Grow Biointensive uh, 
org. Uh, we also have internships, apprenticeships, and uh, long-term full-time staff positions. Wow. Now, you also have uh, a fairly large event coming up in May. Yes. Uh, we've been invited to make available uh, information about biologically intensive uh, food raising or food growing at the Milan Expo, which goes from May 1st to October 31st. Uh, let's see, two, 20 million people from 144 countries are expected to attend. That's about 58,000 people a day. Blows my mind. I, mean, I know they won't make it to our... <laughs> I know they won't... Everybody's not going to make it to where we're at. <laughs> well, John, we've, we've come to the end of our time, and, and I just had wanted to ask, you know, any... any um, just a parting thought as, as people have been listening to this. Well... I think that uh, we began four years ago by uh, having a self-teaching section on our website because we knew that each one of us is the answer, and we wanted everybody to be able to participate. All right. Thank you, John. Well, John, thank, thank you, you so much. Uh, this has been just a terrific to, to chat with you once again, and I hope that we get an Likewise. opportunity to do it again. Great. Good enough. Well, have a good weekend, you. John. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.